Today we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1. A few Sundays ago we finished 1 Peter, and today we're going to start 2 Peter. And in doing that, I just want to give you an overview. So, who wrote 2 Peter? Well, the author would be the disciple Peter, right? Um, what's the time frame between the first and second letter? Uh, probably about a year. And who is it written to? Believers. Uh, and if they haven't already gone through persecution, uh, he, he addresses that they will. And why did he write this to them? He wrote this to strengthen and encourage them. Also to continue in their relationship with the Lord. And also to continue in God's word. Now if First Peter was written uh, to address the problems outside of the church, Second Peter was written to address problems from within the church. And we see that. We also know that Satan uses different tools. Uh, sometimes he'll attack believers from the outside. Uh, you'll have in the Roman Empire, there was governmental issue of persecution. Uh, but what happened was, as Christianity was accepted by the Roman Empire under Constantine, although there was, it wasn't in its purest form, what Satan did was he attacked the church from the inside. He used a lot of the paganism of the Roman Empire to get into the church and infiltrate it that way. So, hey, Christians were free to worship, but a lot of the worship was polluted. It was uh, heresy. It was, it was bad doctrine, and it certainly wasn't biblical. So Satan will use two things. If God is doing something in a church, he will certainly try to find some to come inside and infiltrate the church, whisper certain things, stir up gossip, factions, division, you can see it in, in every church where something's really going on. So we have to be strong to, uh, to resist that. So starting with verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who obtain, obtained a like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So what he does is, he says he's an apostle. I mean, you, that must have been a great title. Imagine being in the early church, like we kind of have name tags. I'm the apostle Peter. I mean, I'm like the top guy here. But Peter refers to himself as a servant. Now, let me just go a little bit deeper into that word. In the Greek, there's three words that mention some type of servanthood. Oiketes, which we've covered. Diakonos, which we've covered, where we get the word deacon from. And doulos, which is the word Peter used. Now, doulos, the other two words imply maybe you can get paid for your service, maybe you're working off a debt, but doulos was a slave. You didn't get anything for it. You did what you were told or you were punished. Now, in Roman society, in polite circles, we don't talk about slavery. Yeah, it's something that our government does, but we, we don't really want to discuss it. However, the apostle is putting it right in his letter to other Christians. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. It just shows his commitment to the Lord. Sometimes titles can, can lift us up and puff us up. We see that in many uh, Christian organizations. But we are a slave of Jesus Christ first. Now, the truth is Romans 6.16 says, to whom you present yourselves to obey, you are that one slave. And here's, here it comes down to this. You're either a slave to the Lord willingly or you're a slave to your own cravings and fleshly desires. And I will tell you this, my flesh is a hard taskmaster. I prefer to put myself under subjugation of the Lord. 
He says, our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, he wasn't speaking about two persons of the Godhead. Understand that. If you know your Greek and the sentence structure, he's saying the same thing. Our God and Savior, same person, Jesus Christ. There's no doubt who we serve, the deity of Christ. And there's two words for knowledge today. You're going to see the word knowledge used six times. There's sort of an intuitive knowledge where you heard about something so you know it. Or there's a familiar knowledge. You're, 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 you have a relational knowledge with a person or a thing. And this is the result of knowing him as a result of conversion and being sealed with the Holy Spirit. And we'll come back to that. Verse 3. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. God, because of his goodness, his glory and virtue, has given us his divine power, through his divine power, the ability to live a complete and godly life. A complete and godly life. And this by the knowledge of him. Number one, the truth of the cross. Yes, I know what Jesus did on the cross. Yes, I understand his finished work on the cross. But the second part of that knowing and knowledge, that relational knowledge, is knowing Jesus as a relationship. Now, I can say that I know Governor Christie. He's our governor. I could tell you what political party he's from. I could tell you generally what he looks like. I know the stands he takes. I know where he lives. Uh, I know a lot of things about Governor Christie. But I don't know Governor Christie like I know my assistant pastor, Pastor Anthony. See, we have a relational knowledge. It's the same word, but different meanings behind it. So do we know Jesus? See, in context, the false teachers of the day, the Gnostics, taught that God's word and a relationship with Jesus Christ wasn't enough. You needed to follow them and get this hidden, esoteric, only available to the few, and you would be super spiritual believers. And Peter's saying, absolutely not. That is not true. Just like the Gnostics, though, our society tells us that we need more than what God has provided. And many Christians buy into that, could go decades being believers and never pass that infancy stage. It could be some type of crutch. It could be a, the newest book, the newest technique, the newest whatever. Gotta have it. And in the age of, of uh, computer technology, some of us are addicted to our computers. I got to have it. My life isn't complete without it. And some even use Facebook and MySpace as a social crutch. Got to have it. It's not just enough to have the Lord and to be... And it, none of these things are bad in and of themselves. But when we use them as a crutch, that's where the problem comes in. Now, I will tell you this, that uh, when I was a boy, I had a stuffed tiger, right? It was about this big. And even in the pictures of me as a boy, I would be posing with my little stuffed tiger. By the way, you'll never see those pictures. <laughs> and one day as I got older, I went into my room and my stuffed tiger was gone. And I said, Ma, where's, I don't even know what I called the thing. She said, Joey, you're getting too old for that. Yes, Pastor Lee calls me Joey and so does my mother. And about 10 people called me Joey last Sunday. But the bottom line is, that was a crutch for me. I needed that tiger, and my mother took that away from me because she said, you're too old for that. And as believers, we have to ask ourselves, think about this, what are some of our crutches? What are some of the things in our lives, maybe of an emotional nature, even a relationship? Sometimes we can worship relationships. What is it that we're using as a crutch? 
What is it that we don't believe about the scripture that God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness? Sometimes we need to stop and evaluate those things that we're struggling with. Verse 4. By which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption or the depravity that is in the world through lust. Again, because of God's goodness and through his great and precious promises, we are partakers of the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world. Promise number one, if we, in our course of the journey of life, are met with the cross, we come face to face, either through a direct revelation or through another believer or through the scripture. We have a choice. We can continue to ignore it or we can stop, repent of our self-directed ways and come back to the cross. We can accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We are born again of the Spirit, and we have eternal life. This is what we're promised. And we escaped hell, which is designed for the wicked angels and unatoned sinners. Second promise, while we're here, because this applies to us right now, we can be like him in character. We can walk in the Spirit. We can escape the world's pull through the power of lust. Now, I would just say this. Pastor Anthony is a project manager uh, by day when he's Clark Kent. Uh, And what happens is he has a project. He's got to get something online, whether it be a a drug or some type of project that he needs to do. And he can have a team of five or six people, and maybe he doesn't know what their skills are. But once he finds out that one guy is a legal expert and one gal is a chemist and the third person is a medical expert and he starts to find out what he has in his arsenal, correct me if I'm wrong, the project goes so much easier. And maybe it might even get done before the deadline. So he knows what he has in his arsenal. And I want to encourage you, struggling believers, take advantage of what God has given you. Stop struggling. I'm just not going to move on to the next point. I really mean this. Some of you here today are struggling in your heart. And what I'm saying is maybe making you a little uneasy. Give it up and give it to the Lord. I saw a... um, I love watching the nature shows. They had these cameras out in the rainforest. And there was, between two trees, these big nasty spiders built this huge web. And uh, sometime later on, a bat was flying through the air and got caught in the web. And the more the bat struggled, the more he started to be wrapped in the, in the web. And the spiders seized on that, and they started coming down after him. Now, those of you who know me know I was rooting for the bat. When the bat finally, I was, I was like, Lord, I don't want to watch this. When the bat finally relaxed and, and started calmly chewing through the silken web, just before the spiders got at him, he flew out. He took off. And sometimes as believers, we struggle, 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 struggle. We're in such a panic. We're in such a downward spiral that we forget about the Lord. Who's, who hasn't been there? I've been there. And you just got to stop. There's no time to pray. We need to panic. You know what I'm saying? Stop struggling. Use what the Lord has given you and blessed you with because everything is there for you to live a complete life and a godly life. Now, the second point to this is others might be convicted by what they're hearing. They might be convicted for not wanting to escape the corruptions of the world. Now, me as a new believer, I was a new believer and I went to a place that I didn't belong. And I kind of felt uncomfortable, but, you know, I did it so many times before. I just was hanging out. 
And a person who didn't know the Lord, who was unregenerate, and it was weird, the voice was almost like a horror movie, they pointed to me and they said, what are you doing here, Christian? And I kind of ignored it, but I was convicted. And when I left, I never went back. Escape the corruptions of the world. The believer has the power and responsibility to grow spiritually and to say no to people, places, and things that drag us down. But do we always do that? As a pastor, one of my functions as a diligent pastor is to face trends. What's going on in the world? What's going on? What can affect the congregation, younger, older, uh, middle-aged, whatever the case may be? And I have to face these trends and discuss them from the pulpit. You're probably going to laugh, but there's a show that's very popular in New Jersey. It's called The Jersey Shore. I hear some laughs. I said to myself, I've read about it, and how can I talk about it from the pulpit unless I watch it? But then I struggled, and I said, you know what? I heard it's really bad. Maybe I shouldn't be watching it. So what I did was I watched a one-minute, well, actually it was several minutes, clip from YouTube about an overview of the show. And after about one minute, I just shut it off. I got all I need to know that I have enough education that I can speak about the show. Now, here's the deal. Number one, which is less important, I'll go to the more important point. Um, A lot of them are a bunch of Italians from New York. (laughs) Now, I cringe when I say this, I'm an Italian from New York. But it's embarrassing. I'm actually considering telling people I'm Scandinavian, though I don't know if it's going to (laughs) work. The second and most important point about this show is that I don't doubt that there are many believers who watch the show and contribute to its ratings. That's a problem. Do we want to escape the corruptions of the world? Are we serious about it? Or is it just lip service? Do we want to say something in church and and talk the lingo and and, uh, remember a few verses and, and do the double life thing? And then when you go home, you immerse yourself back in the things of the world. The corruption of the world. Why do we want to do that? When you do that, you set yourself up for being like Lot and his wife. They were practically pulled out of that wicked city, believers, by the angels and taken to higher ground. And even so, they said, don't look back. Lot's wife looked back and she turned to a pillar of salt. Lot was so influenced, and so was his family, that he had a relationship with his daughters, and I say that lightly, uh, afterwards. So this is what happens when we're in the pollutions of the world. Now, here's the deal. Many of us have secular jobs. I do. But when I go out on the road, I want to influence people for the better. I don't want to go out on the road and let the garbage that I have to deal with, and I don't mean people, but but the actions, to influence me. And believers, when you're filling your mind with that kind of junk, what you're doing is you're allowing yourself to be corrupted. Instead of you influencing them for positive, you're allowing them to influence you for negative. Do you hear what I'm saying? Listen, after last Sunday with Pastor Luis, anything that I say is going to sound like sugar. (laughs) And I don't know if some of you were squirming because you're convicted or because it rained in the sanctuary and the pews are still wet. I don't know. But the bottom, the bottom line is, as believers, we should want to escape that corruption, not like it, not look for opportunities to be polluted by it, because it will affect you. The more you live a double life, James says you are unstable in all your ways. And what's going to happen is you won't have peace. You won't. You won't have that. Verse 5. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, 
to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For this reason, diligently add. In the English, it's a three-letter word. In the Greek, it means much more than that. It's a composite word that's emphatic, and it's a command. And one of the synonyms are furnish. I like that. So if Jesus is the cornerstone, he's my foundation, and I'm in the spiritual house, and faith is my spiritual house, furnish myself with these qualities that we're going to discuss. I mean, what is a house without... Um, sometimes I'll drive by and I'll see these developments and they're like $800,000 homes and the people can't even afford blinds or curtains or, or furniture. They're just empty. You look through the windows. But the thing is, what is the sense in having a house if it's not furnished, if, the, if there's not an accent to it? So let's go through some of these. Add these things. Number one, virtue, valor, or moral excellence. Don't be polluted by the world. Have the fortitude to be above that. Now, if you can watch things on TV that corrupt you and you can make such a commitment to know all the characters and all the situations, but you have such a lackluster commitment to the Lord, to church attendance, to serving the Lord, what does that say? You don't have that. You don't have that. Knowledge. And there was a joke that's, that goes, uh, why do people change churches so much? What's the sense in which, go, which church you go to if you're just going to stay home? Pretty interesting. Two, knowledge, uh, that experiential, pragmatic, and practical, not just mental assent. James tells us that the demons believe in God and they tremble. Not only do the demons believe in God, the demons probably know more about the Bible than many Christians. They know all of God's word and they know what, what is waiting for them, but they're not saved. So just mental assent doesn't do it. We need to have a relationship with the Lord. Three, self-control, temperance, continence, Control of the fleshly cravings. In a spiritual sense, leave those fleshly cravings in the basement and lock the door and don't let them come back up. Perseverance. Endurance. Consisted. Fortitude. You know, I love a person who just takes the things of life, takes the trials, and all they can do is... I've just seen so many that blow me away with their character. So many things have happened in their lives, and they just have joy. And the world would look at that and say, what is wrong with you? Are you delusional? What type of drug are you on? But the truth is, they have that perseverance. No matter what happens, they know that their hope lies in Jesus Christ and his promises for them. Uh, When I was young, my stepfather got me involved into boxing, and I would just be amazed at some of these fighters that would just keep taking hits, and they would go down and get back up. Then they'd get hit again, go down and get back up, and their faces were all contorted, and you would say, just stay down, man. But they would just get up, and some of them at the end would win the fight. How does that happen? Just that perseverance, they can't be knocked down. Listen, some of us are, are in the spiritual realm. We're a little bruised. We're a little beat up. We've got some scars. We've got some emotional scars, right? But what can you do then just get back up, brush yourself off, and continue to live in the promises of the Lord? We need more of that in Christianity. Sometimes I get carried away, and and I'll tell my son, who's going to be 11 soon, and uh, he displays characteristics of wanting everything done for him. So I'm like, son, you don't get it. Get up. Be a man. It's a tough world out there. It'll chew you up and spit you out. And he goes, Dad, I'm only 10 years old. (laughs) Oh, I have to catch myself once in a while. Five, godliness. I love when I fellowship with a believer and they just, 
when, it, when I see them, when I talk to them, when I'm in communion with them, I just see Christ. I can just say Christ. I can see those characteristics. And I love even the characteristics of those who are like a Timothy and a Titus, you know, just that eagerness for the Lord, for the things of God. I love that type of fellowship. Brotherly kindness, number six. When we look forward to fellowshipping with the saints, when we look forward to coming together, what's going on? I just know some believers that uh, they just live their lives really by what's going on in the body of Christ, a social event, a, 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 an event to help someone, uh, uh, conquer cancer yesterday. There was only a few ladies. And listen, men, if you can so, it is, this isn't a, this is, you know, we, we were open to everybody. But uh, they just, with a few women together, with needles and threads and sewing machines, they made all these uh, pillowcases and crafts for people who uh, just would cheer them up who are going through the ordeals of cancer. Just excited to do it. When my wife told me all the things that were done, I was blown away. I'm like, I only saw like eight, nine or ten people there. How did that happen? So kudos to you ladies for doing that. And the seventh one is love. Now that's last but not least important. See, when I look at a, a, a building or a, a block structure, and if you're in construction, you put the mortar and the blocks, and they're so boring. But when you take the skim coat at the end and cover the block and porridge it and paint it and stucco it and finish it, wow, now it's something to look at. And I look at love like that. If our faith is a structure and we're furnishing it with the things of God, love is the finishing touches. Love is beautiful, right? It, it, it beautifies everything. When we think of others more important than ourselves and we're ministering to each other and we're ministering to the community and we're working together as the body of Christ, that looks beautiful. So don't forget that agape love. And I have to ask myself, do I have these things? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I call myself a Christian. But do I display these characteristics? Have I added these qualities to my faith? Verse 9. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if we lack these things, tragically, it reveals something about our walk. It's weak. It's poor. Now, there's two analogies. Number one is blindness, and the other one is for forgetfulness. And I would say 2,000 years later, with all the advances in modern medicine, as people in, in the physical world, we still fear blindness and forgetfulness. Let me go to the extreme in forgetfulness, Alzheimer's. It's dreaded, and I'll tell you why. First, blindness. Physically, we can't negotiate the physical realm with which we were placed into. Nobody wants to go blind, and we don't know where we're going in a, in a spatial uh, type of understanding. Now, spiritual blindness is we don't see the ramifications of our sins. We're self-deceived. We think it's quite all right to continue living in, in the fleshly world, uh, living in sin, and also coming and coming before God and thinking he's okay with that. The same God of the Old Testament is the same God today. He still feels the same way about sin. He hasn't changed his mind. He hasn't gotten soft. Two, amnesia. We have forgotten. If you look at Alzheimer's, it's feared because we forget much about our loved ones, and it causes our relationships to suffer. Some spouses who have that don't recognize each other anymore. And that's heartbreaking to see. Now, if you look at that in a spiritual sense, a spiritual forgetfulness, we forget who we are, we forget who, re who redeemed us, and we forget who we serve. 
So obviously, our relationship with the Lord will suffer. Keep going back to our old sins, letting them have domination in our life instead of pressing forward and living the victorious Christian life. It's almost as if, you know, someone's been a Christian for decades and they do something that's so blatantly anti-scriptural, so blatantly wrong, such a bad example to set to others that we say, what are you doing? I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. Verse 10, he says, be more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Be more diligent. This is used twice. Now, to make your calling and election sure, do these things and you will never stumble. Wow. So what we do is we have the ability to walk in the Spirit all the time. But the truth is, inevitably, we all have our moments. You know, that's part of our other nature. We go back and revert at times. Something happens, it's a test, and sometimes we fail miserably. Sometimes we do, we do well. But we have the ability to walk in the Spirit. We have the responsibility not to be spiritually lazy. We actually have an active role in our spiritual growth. Verse 11, For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now this implies we have a hand in it. I like to quote Warren Wearsby. He's a, a Baptist pastor that leans Reformed. Now, if you understand Reformed theology, you'll be impressed by this statement that I, I took from him. He said, election is not an excuse for laziness. Now, from somebody who believes in Reformed theology, that's pretty impressive. God's election, God wills you to do things. But it is not an excuse for laziness, he says. I like this guy. Cooperation with God. And many believers aren't cooperating with God. You have to understand the intensity here. The Apostle Peter is going to die soon. He knows he's going to die. He wants to really make sure the believers understand what it means to be a Christian. He's very intense. He's going to be fine. He's going to be with the Lord. But he's leaving many believers behind, and he's concerned for their spiritual health. And I would just say this to, to um, you know, we have to apply ourselves. And I've said this before. There's a certain type of person, listen, notwithstanding tragedy, if you go through a tragedy and you tell me, we'll sit down, I'll listen, I won't say a word, we'll weep together, we'll pray together. Weep with those who weep. But there's a certain type of personality that they're always moping, always miserable, always whining, complaining, critical, Right? Home all day, on the computer too much instead of in the Bible, talking on the phone, gossiping instead of talking to the Lord, focusing on themselves instead of focusing on God. That is a recipe for misery. I can tell you, I've been there. You know what I'm saying? That is a, a surefire way. But I'm a believer and God's not helping and he's not answering my prayers. Look at your lifestyle. It's called a relationship. If you ignore your spouse for enough time, there's, there's something that'll happen. It's called divorce. You know? And if you ignore the Lord, you can't blame him for the outcome of your life. The United States is one of the few countries where citizens can afford to be bored and idle. But the Bible calls that sloth. And here's the problem. If you're so away from God's word, so away from his precepts, so away from his concepts, just like the psalmist who on the opposite says, I love your, your word. You know, it's like, honey, I, I love to meditate on your word. If you're so away from that when you do something wrong and I have to talk to you, and I use scripture, you're going to get mad at me. You're picking on me, you're judging me, because what happens is you're so away from God's word, you don't recognize it when you're hit with it. Right? You're self-deceived. So I'm not setting anybody up. I don't have to talk to anybody after service, but I'm just saying in general. And I would say this, if your life is that boring and you're so focused on yourself, we have a maintenance ministry. There's plenty of stuff to do around this place. 
just don't loosen the screws on that projector above me. <laughs> Believe me, nobody wants my job. No, I'm kidding. All right, enough of that. You can love someone very deeply and still be disappointed in them. And I don't want that from my Lord. He loves me. He has unconditional love for me, right? It's not based on what I do. It's not based on how good I He just loves me. But that doesn't mean that I can do or I can neglect or I can uh, uh, just omit uh, a point where he has called me to do something where he's not disappointed in me. I don't want that. When I come into the kingdom, I want him to say, Joe, you made a lot of mistakes. It was, it was a chuckle watching you half the times, but uh, you did your best. Well done, thy good and faithful. That's all I want to hear. I, I made it to the finish line. I'm happy. Verse 12. Therefore, I will not be negligent, Peter says, to remind you always of these things, though you know them and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as, as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, or in other words, die and leave this body, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. So Peter's legacy, he had the spiritual discernment to know that he was going to die soon. And in John 21, Jesus pretty much told him how he was going to die and at what stage of his life he was going to die. But Peter said he wasn't going to be guilty. He wasn't going to be negligent in reminding the leaders or the Christians what they needed to do before his death. And the question is, what is our legacy? What do we want to leave to our loved ones, our children, our grandchildren? What do we want them to know about us? You know, I tell my son, I try to explain to him, you need to have your own faith with the Lord. Um... He was on the school bus the other day, and it looked like they were going to miss his stop at, at the house. So he prayed, Lord, I hope they don't miss my... That's good. But also pray, you know, when things are going great and thank him for stuff. I want him to have his own relationship. These are the things, this is the legacy that I want to leave him, that I want to instill into him. And of course, take care of your mother. If something happens to me, you're the man in the house, take care of your mother. I know you're saying, boy, it must be hard living with this guy. But, you know, these are the... Th I'm pretty serious. I mean, I... I I try to be light, but I'm also, I'm, I can be very intense. And I think it's the job. As a cop for 19 years, I've seen the horrors of what people do to each other. I've seen uh, young people lose their lives in an untimely death, and uh, I'm pretty serious about this stuff. So I don't think I'm ever going to lose that intensity because of my background. It's like when I see believers messing up their lives and barely eking out an existence, I feel like taking them, sitting them in the patrol car and say, you're going to drive with me for 10 and a half hours to see what the, the real world lives like. So, you know, I think Peter's got that intensity. I like it. Uh, so we'll just move on. Peter says this, I have to put off this tent or tabernacle. Now, what's interesting, he's speaking about his body. This is how Peter looked at himself, that this body, flesh and blood, is just a tent. Now, this is amazing. When you look at the children of Israel and you watch them go through the wilderness, and I just got this studying this after all these years, uh, but it's so cool because they would have like a, like a circus tent. They would put it up, they would put up the stakes, and they would have the uh, holy place and the most holy room, the holy of holies, and they would put the Ark of the Covenant in there, and God's presence would dwell. He said, I would dwell on the mercy seat, my Shekinah glory. And then what would happen is they would follow the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. God would lead them. And what would happen is when the, the fire stopped or the, or the cloud stopped, everybody would stop, set up the tent, holy of holies, worship. And then when God would move again, they would move. It's just such a picture of, it's a type of the believer's life. 
Check it out. We're just a tent. The tent is not important. The Holy of Holies is important. The Shekinah glory. We are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. So as a believer, we have a tent, but within this tent, God has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. That is so cool. And at the same time, we follow him. Wherever he goes, we should go. When he stops, we should stop. And that's the way our life should be. So this is really a a picture of believers and how they're supposed to live their lives. I like it. Uh, Yeah. And he says, my decease, after my departure or my decease or my death. The Greek word is exodus. In other words, my exit. And this is how believers... I want to encourage you because believers come to me every so often and say, I fear death, I'm afraid. And I try to encourage them. I try to say things that will comfort them, not just to make them feel good, but truthful stuff. And the truth is, when we die, we don't suffer. I'm claustrophobic. I don't want to be in that pine box. Well, you're not. That's not you. That's like if you cut off all my hair and my eyebrows and you clip my fingernails and threw them in a box. It's sort of me, but it's really not me. My essence is not in that box. When we die, it's an exodus. We leave this one realm, and we go into the spiritual realm. We go into the heavenlies. So that's really a cool way of looking at it, and it's truthful. I don't know how anybody who doesn't know the Lord, and they're suffering with something, and they, re- they rebel against God, I don't know what they must go through. It must be torment, thinking, well, what if I'm wrong? What if I don't cease to exist when, when my heart starts beating? I, I don't know how they do it. Verse 16 He says, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is, of course, the reference to the transfiguration. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we didn't follow fables. Now, if you understand, and I, I, I kind of find it interesting because the Roman and the Greek gods, the pantheon, uh, these gods were, had human characteristics. So they really made their gods in their own image. No one claimed to see them. They came up with this pantheon with, for all the different emotions and feelings and weirdness of human nature and made a god out of it. But he's saying that we didn't do that. We were witnesses. We saw this stuff. They're not fables. Matthew 16 Uh, They witnessed the transfiguration, his glorified appearance, Christ, and the Father's voice from heaven. We were there. We remember it. Even today, uh, a lot of the Hollywood people follow this Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. Now, if you follow the Old Testament, Kabbalah is an oxymoron. There is no such thing as Jewish mysticism. If you're in mysticism, you're in sin, and you're in heresy, and you're following the devil. So I don't know where they attach Judaism to this because it's, God is, uh, specifically condemns it. So uh, Peter says now, before he dies, he wants to impart the truth about the glory of Christ and Jesus as the only way, and no doubt that he's going to die soon. And really to say that the transfiguration was a picture of uh, when Jesus eventually died on the cross, even though they were suffering, there was glory. Right? And, and we also um, receive that. Verse 19, we also have the prophetic word made more sure, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, in addition to the witness of Christ, what do we also have? We have the certainty of God's word, which is spiritually a light. It illuminates in a dark place. Now, for those of you who've ever used a flashlight or any type of light at night, boom, everything's illuminated. So in a physical sense, yes. But there's even more than that. We live in a spiritually dark world, right? We live in a world that was forfeited by 
uh, Adam and Eve, and certainly Satan took it. He offered uh, Jesus these powers. Jesus said, no, there's another way to get that. I'm not going to get them through you. All right? So we live in a very dark world. Men love to do evil deeds in the darkness. But God's word is a light until Christ returns. Now, this whole thing about the, um, uh, the word morning star comes from the Greek word meaning light-bearing. Now, in those days, they would understand this. In the eastern sky, and even today, uh, Venus, which is closer to the sun than the Earth, is the sixth, lar- sixth largest planet and also the brightest in terms of luminosity of reflecting the sun's light. So in those days, in the eastern sky, a Venus would come up or, or, or pass the sky just before the sun would dawn, and it looked like a star because it was so bright. So in other words, this is saying that, number one, the Lord's going to come back and there's going to be light forever, but in the meantime, we have God's word. And also... Uh, Christ in our hearts. Last two verses, verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So God's word is not of a private. And the word for private in the Greek is idios. I kind of chuckle at that. It really means self. And we kind of get the word idiot from an idiosyncrasy. So I guess that says something about a person that always focuses on themselves. But number one, it didn't come from someone's mind. It didn't come from some hidden knowledge that's not available to anyone, like the Gnostics taught. Uh, It wasn't to be interpreted by a special body like a magisterium that nobody else knows but only these people know. And they'll let you know how much of the word they're going to give you. Going all the way back to the Psalms, God's word was for all to be illuminated. Psalm 119, 105, the psalmist says, Lord, your word is a light to my path and a lamp unto my feet. There's just enough light that I need your word day by day, but I always have to follow it. I don't want to outrun you. So the psalmist had a personal relationship with the Lord also through his word. Peter also explains the mode in which scripture gets to us. It's by the Holy Spirit. And the word for moved literally means to be carried or driven. So when these men of God received from the Holy Spirit this inspired scripture and they wrote it down, probably half the times they didn't even know what they were writing, but they were obedient. These future prophecies that they, I don't know, I'm just going to do what God has told me to do. But the Bible says that the Holy Spirit does the heavy lifting. So all the men had to do was take their hand and their writing utensils and their parchment and write it down, and the Holy Spirit would do all the heavy lifting. I like that. And this is the way that you can take 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, over a period of 2,500 years, uh, written in roughly three different languages to start, and then later more languages it was written in, uh, by different men of different cultures, 40 authors, and it all comes together in harmony. That's an impossible task. Now, in those days, there was no internet, so they could, there couldn't be collusion. Different sides of the world, different places that they wrote in. So that's why we know that it is from the Holy Spirit. So Peter's basically saying this, to wrap it up. Number one, Peter's seen it all. He's walked with Christ. He saw the miracles. He saw his Lord die on the cross. He, he fled. He, he didn't want to know him when, when there was no power. But then he also saw him rise again. And the disciples also saw the Lord rise into heaven, to ascend into heaven after his 40-day ministry. So he knows he's going to die and, ex- and step into inexpressible joy forever. So what do you say to the believers you're leaving behind? What is your legacy? Number one, know him. Again, that word know is used six times in one chapter. Now, there are, just like the Greek word for love, we have in the English love. I can love 
this pulpit, and I could love my wife. Far different uh, application. But in the Greek, there was four different uh, words for love in the classic Greek. Now, also in the Greek, there's one word for knowledge. Uh, like I said, I know Governor Christie, but I know Pastor Anthony. Big difference in how I know these men. Uh, but there were several different words in the Greek that expressed the different forms of to know. This word is not intuitive. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus knew no sin. Wait a minute, he's God, he knows everything, especially when it comes to the fallen angels and sin. You're saying he didn't know sin? He didn't know sin in a sense that he was familiar with it where he engaged in it. But he found out really quickly when he was nailed to that cross what it was like because it was all dumped on him in one moment. So he eventually knew that sin because he became sin, but initially he had no familiarity. God doesn't sin. He can't sin. So understand the word no. Have a relationship with Jesus. Number one, know him because you'll never survive persecutions and trials without it. Number two, be serious about your faith. Peter is saying, don't be lazy. Don't exist with a weak, bare-bottom, minimal uh, faith, okay? And number three, to keep out of trouble with the cults back then and today, be led by the light of God's word and be guided by the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you this, I can't say it any better today for our generation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that scripture is not of a private interpretation. We're thankful that in America, we have so many different Bibles, so much freedom to receive your word. And in some countries...